I am uh, grateful to be here to, uh, to preach to you this morning. Um, I always feel very privileged when I get the opportunity to handle God's Word in whatever capacity that may be, and I, I am thankful to be here. Um, I told Jared last Sunday, I said, thank you for teeing that one up for me because it takes a lot of restraint for a preacher to, you know, there's a really, really good verse uh, coming up. It takes a lot of restraint not to cover that verse, and and I appreciate him so much, him and Chris, uh, just throwing this one, throwing me a bone here, and and we see so many good truths here in, in verse 18 through 25. I will cover uh, one extra and a few more. But if you haven't been with us um, <clears throat> over the last couple of weeks, we, as we've been walking through the book of Philemon, it's a, it's a short letter, 25 verses, written by the Apostle Paul from prison to named Philemon. He is a, uh, a wealthy guy. He's got a slave named Onesimus, and Paul is writing on behalf of Onesimus to Philemon, and really the big overarching word that covers this entire epistle is love, is love, and uh, we see that in many different ways, and there's many big ideas in this uh, short little letter, and I'm not even sure that Paul knew that it would be included in the canon of Scripture because it's just literally a, a short letter to a guy to try to fix a situation, uh, a, a broken relationship. And Paul sees how that broken relationship first has to be fixed through the power of the gospel before the relationship between the uh, Philemon and Onesimus can be restored. We see uh, this short letter, we see intercession, we see a ministry, Paul literally living out the ministry of reconciliation, uh, which just reconcile means it's broken and, and it needs to be fixed. That's, that's what it implies. And Paul is, that's a ministry that we've all been given, not a ministry, but we've been given the ministry of reconciliation to try to plead uh, on behalf of Jesus Christ and the, for the sake of love and for the sake of the gospel to other people to be reconciled, to follow that command, to be reconciled to God, which is only through faith in Jesus Christ. As ambassadors, as representatives in a foreign land, this world is not our home. We're just pilgrims passing through. That We are supposed to be ambassadors going to a better place, but trying to take as many people along the way with us. We see that ministry of reconciliation. We see substitution. We see a doctrine called imputation, and we'll talk about that a little bit more as we go. But uh, here um, in Philemon, if you have your Bible, join me there. Uh, it's right before, uh, I believe, Hebrews, right after the book of Titus. <clears throat> Here's what Paul writes. He says, if then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. Not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you knowing that you'll do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that 
Through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. He finishes by saying, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with your spirit. Amen. And so we see, we, we've saw as we lead up, lead up to this point, uh, Jared has laid it out so great. If you haven't watched that, go, go to our, our YouTube page or our, or our Facebook page and go back and watch the first two. Uh, he's laid it out so good. Uh, and Jared has pointed this out that Paul is literally, he's buttered Philemon up in this letter. He's, he's, he's uh, kind of given him an identification. He's reminded him of who he is before he brings about this big ask, asking him to do what he says is the right thing to do. And, he, and if you've dealt with leadership or administration or if you deal with people at all, you, you've probably heard of the sandwich technique. It's got two positives and a critique in the middle, and that's kind of what Paul's done here. He's buttered him up, something good. He's, he's going to have a big ask right in the middle, and then at the end of it, in verse 19, he says, oh, yeah, you, you owe me, you know. And so that's kind of what Paul's done in this letter. He's laid it out that way. He, he calls Philemon a beloved friend, a fellow laborer, a fellow soldier. He greets him as he does in most of his epistles with grace and peace from God, our Father, identifying again as how they are brothers in Christ. They're related spiritually. He thanks God. He says, I thank God for you always when I pray. Uh, he shows appreciation, commends him for his faith and love toward God. And other people, he, you know, literally just pointing out that, hey, you, you do a great job of living out the great commandment. And he calls him a refresher of other people. So Paul has buttered him up. Now he's going to plea for Onesimus on his behalf and intercede. That's that word intercede, kind of a go-between between another person and, and another person. He pleads Onesimus's case. He calls him a son. My child, he says. He says... I'm his father in the faith. And, and actually, you guys have two, something in common. Uh, I'm both your fathers in the faith. I'm both your spiritual fathers. I'm, your, I'm a spiritual father to both of you. Okay, I've led both of you to the Lord. And, and so he makes that connection, and he says, I know he's been unprofitable to you in the past, but now he can be profitable. He can live up to his name. That's what Onesimus' name means. It means profitable. And now because his life and his position has been changed by the power of the gospel, he can be profitable both to you and to me and the Lord for the sake of the gospel. And he points out that he's now, he's a brother in Christ. And so that's, as Paul has, has shown this appreciation, he's made this appeal, now he's got a big ask to Philemon. This is what he says in uh, Verse 17, he says, If then, you know, based on everything I've already told you, if you count me, if you consider or regard me as a partner, you know, having all things in common, I've identified you as a fellow laborer, a fellow soldier, a brother uh, in Christ. Our Father is God. We, have, we should have things in common. We should want to do the same things and have the same mind just as, as Christ uh, had. And so he says, If you count me as a partner... Receive him, welcome him, accept him as you would accept me. And I, and I can't think, I can't help but think when I'm reading this letter, 
you know, to kind of put myself into the shoes of Philemon as he's standing there or sitting there reading this letter literally brought to him by the person that wronged him, Onesimus. And Onesimus is standing there as Philemon's reading this letter that Paul's written to him, asking him to receive him as he would Paul. And I, I put my, my, myself in the mind of Philemon, and I'm thinking, he's probably thinking, are you crazy? Are you kidding me? You want me to receive this Onesimus, this unprofitable runaway slave who's wronged me, and then he ran without saying a word as you, Paul, the apostle, the one who was directly called by God on Damascus Road, commissioned by him, an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ who was given power to do signs and wonders. You actually want me to receive him as you. That's, that's not a, that's, that substitute doesn't work. It doesn't add up. It's not the same. It doesn't carry the same weight. But Paul reminds him in, in verse 19, he says, that you're all, I also led you to the Lord. So Philemon's probably thinking that too. You want me to receive this guy who's wronged me for someone who led me to the Lord and changed my position in Christ. And, and Philemon's probably thinking that he deserves to be executed. He deserves the death penalty. That was the penalty for a runaway slave was was death. And he's probably thinking, what if he wrongs me again? What if he says something really, or what if he does something really even worse the next time? What, you know, what if he does more damage? He doesn't deserve my forgiveness. But you see, here's the difference. He's not asking him to receive Onesimus just as Onesimus. He's asking him to receive Paul, a substitute not on Onesimus's merit or any of the works that he has done or can do, but on what Paul has already done and what he continues to do for the church. He's not asking him to receive him on the basis of any potential that Onesimus has, but out of love and forgiveness and what, based on the fact of what Paul has done for him. And exactly, that's exactly how God receives us. He doesn't receive us based on, upon anything that we have done or ever will do, but he receives us based upon what Christ has already done as our substitute in our place. You see, if you believe the gospel, if you believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose again, your position now is changed. You, you go from being in Adam, and all that are in Adam, all will die. But those that are in Christ are made alive and will live forever. And so... Paul has pointed that out. His position has changed. Onesimus is different now. He's, his position has been changed by the power of the gospel. He, he's accepted uh, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ for his sins. And now I'm sending him back to you because he can be profitable to you and me and to the Lord for the sake of the gospel. And so, again, Christ doesn't receive us based upon our own merit we don't get to go to heaven because we're so good. We get to go to heaven because he's so good and because of what he did for us in our place. And so the gospel, that's what we've been talking about in this series. This is called the gospel disruption. Well, the gospel disrupts our position, and it should change our perspective, how we see other people. And so I reminded of this great verse here in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new crea uh, creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. This verse right here is a positional truth. All right, your, your old standing with God after you trust Christ as your Savior, you put your faith in the gospel and what He did 
for you in your place. Your position now changed, and you are in Christ. You've become a new creation, a new creature. You have a new standing with God. Your old standing has passed away. You're now accepted into the beloved. You're seated in the heavenlies with Christ, wherever he is. If he's seated at the right hand of God because of my position, I am in him. Wherever he is, there I am because I'm in Christ. That's my positional change. I have a new birth, a new nature, new desires. Uh, I'm adopted into the family of God. I'm a child of the king. Heaven is my home. I have a new destination now that I'm going to. I went from unsaved to saved, saved from the penalty of sin. I went from an unbeliever to a believer, unjustified to justified, literally declared righteous the moment that you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And now I'm considered righteous, fit for the kingdom of heaven, not because of what I've done, but because of what Christ did. I, I, was, I was unprofitable to God. Now I can be profitable to him because I'm on his team. And, and, and that's what this verse is talking about. It's talking about a, a change, a positional change. And Paul's reminding Philemon, Onesimus, his position has now changed. He's on the right team. And so just as Paul has pleaded this case, Jesus Christ lives forever to plead our case. He's our intercessor. He's our advocate, our go-between between us and God. If we believe the record that he gave to us of his son, he's sitting there at the right hand of God pleading for us. He's our mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ, Jesus. And so Onesimus' position has changed, and Paul reminded him of that. And sometimes when we make decisions in our life, as Paul has reminded Philemon of who he is, and now he's reminded, or he's brought up to his attention who Onesimus is now, we need to be reminded of our identity and who we are in Christ and how God would have us to act toward other people because of not anything that they've done, but because of what Christ did for us and the grace that we've received so freely Uh, That means you got something that you didn't deserve. We should also act towards others with the same grace and gratitude that uh, we've we've been given. And and, and, and that positional change should change also our perspective of other people, how we see other people. Paul reminds in Galatians here that there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. Now that Onesimus's position has changed, they're all one. We're on the same team. All believers are equal because of their position in Christ. It's not about race, color, social status, gender, what type of sin you've committed. It's not about a label. It's about being in Christ. Paul knew the changing power of the gospel that it could take a mess and turn it into a message and take a murderer and turn it into a missionary, take a slave like Onesimus and turn him into a brother if we would just look through all of that through the lens of the gospel. And that's how God looks at us if we accept what Christ has done on our behalf. And so we see here that uh, Paul's plea or his offer it's not just with words, but with action. He, he, he offers to do something. He offers to remedy the situation, to reconcile the situation. And he does it with action. He responds out of love and out of 
grace, grace getting something that you don't deserve. Onesimus doesn't deserve what Paul's getting ready to offer on his behalf. Paul says this, he says, but if he has wronged you or owes anything, I love this, these verses right here, put that on my account. Paul, Paul uses an accounting or a bookkeeping term to say, charge it to me. I'll pay for that. And that's a great illustration of imputation, what Christ did for the whole world. He literally took the sins of the whole world, paid for them on the cross, put it on his account. He imputed all the unrighteousness to him. He wasn't unrighteous. He knew no sin. But he took all sin, and he paid for it. He says if, you, if he's wronged you, we don't know exactly what Onesimus did to wrong Philemon, but the fact that Paul uses an accounting or bookkeeping term has to kind of imply to us that he probably robbed him or stole something from him. Um, so he suffered a financial loss uh, and even loss of services by losing his slave. Um, the phrase here, put that on my account, is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful illustration of love, grace, and imputation. Love that that Paul has, has offered to pay a debt he did not owe. Grace that he offered Onesimus something he did not deserve. An imputation by trading his good deeds upon his merit for Onesimus's bad deeds and, and, and what he had done wrong. And we see this great doctrine throughout all of Scripture, starting in the Garden of Eden, this, this doctrine of imputation. You see, when and all that word means, it means to count, to reckon, or to put to one's account. When you go to the bank and you make a deposit, they put it to your account, right? And so when we see this great doctrine in Romans chapter 4, uh, it talks about when Abraham believed God, he accounted it to righteousness. God literally put his righteousness to Abraham's account because of what he believed. He took God at his word. God promised, and he said, I'll put righteousness to your account. And so that's what that simply means. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, the first type of imputation is that whenever Adam sinned, all of our sin, all, all of sin fell upon all men, for all have sinned. We've all sinned to come short of the glory of God. We all are born with a sinful nature. Uh, we all do things wrong, all of us. That's Romans 5.12. That's talking about all sin fell upon all men, all mankind. The good news is that God provided for us in our place as our substitute a sin bearer, his son Jesus Christ. Isaiah prophesied about this in Isaiah 53 and verse 6. Toward the end of that, he said that the Lord would lay on him the iniquity of us all, all things that we've ever done wrong. He would put on Christ. He would impute that. He would put that to Christ's account. All right? He was literally made... For God, he, for he, God, made him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God provided the sin bearer. He made him to be sin. He didn't make him to sin. He made him to be sin. He put all of our sin on him. First Peter 2.24 says that he himself, Jesus Christ, bore our sins in his own body on the tree on the cross. And so we see this great, great good news, what God has done for us by putting all of the sin of the whole world on Christ. Now think about in what, what, what uh, Paul wrote to the Colossians. He said, and this was written about the same time that Philemon was written. Um, 
And that's where Philemon was from, Colossae. He said, and you, being dead, spiritually dead in your sins, and uh, hath he made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, all sin was put on Christ and paid for, forgiven. That, that great illustration of, of forgiveness, it means to send off or away, to separate the sin from the sinner. All sin has been paid for by Christ. And he says this, he said, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. That's the law. The law condemns us. It's a sin detector. It lets us know that we've all come short. But, but when Christ died on the cross, he took upon himself the sins of the whole world, and he died, and that he wiped it away. All the charges that were against us, he took care of it himself. Not only that, he says, he took it out of the way. But over in the Psalms, it says that all of our sin was cast as far as the east is from the west. And, and my wife gave me this beautiful illustration uh, a year or so ago. Um, and I don't know where she got it. She's just really smart. But if you think about a globe, now think about a globe. Now, we, most, we don't have those in classrooms anymore, really. Uh, you little flat earth, earth believers around here. I don't, I don't know. But no, I'm just kidding. Um, if you think about a globe, if you go north, you'll eventually go south, right? But if you're going east, you're always going east. You never go west. And, and the same way with west, you're always going west. You never cross over into west. And, uh, west. and God says that he casts your sin as far as the east is from the west, never to be remembered Again, think about that for just a minute. The forgiveness that God offers to all of us, that he took that and cast it. And that means it will never be remembered. It will never cross God's mind again. It will never cross over. That's how much he's done. He says he took it out of the way. Get this. Nailing it to his cross. All sins for all time, past, present, and future, that anyone in the whole entire world has ever committed have been nailed to the cross of Christ. And he paid the sin debt that we all owe. And he literally, when he was there on the cross, he said three words. Again, another accounting or bookkeeping term that when a debt was paid in the Roman world, they would stamp it to telestai. Or telestai, however you pronounce that. Which means literally paid in full. Jesus Christ said... It's finished, paid in full. I've taken upon myself every sin that you will ever commit or ever, ever thought about committing, all sin for all time. I, he, he offered himself one sacrifice for all people, for all time, forever. And he nailed it to his cross. And he died. And he paid the payment that we all deserve to, to pay he paid it and finished. He didn't say, I am finished. They don't deserve this. He said, it is finished. It's all paid. He paid it in full. He did not pay half of it and expect you to cover the other half by your good deeds. He didn't pay for 99.9% .9 of it and ask you to do the 0.1%. No, he paid for it all, paid in full. And that's good news. All sins are paid, past, present, and future. See, none of us will, that, that's grace. None of us will ever stand before God and beat our chest saying, here I am, God. Look at all the good things that I've done. Aren't you impressed? 
No, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. There'll be no boasters in heaven. The only thing that we'll be able to boast about is in the cross of Christ. And we'll be all standing before the throne and we'll be pointing at the one who bled and suffered and died as our substitute in our place, looking at him and saying, I owe you. You did it. Nothing I've done. Christ did it. And he paid for it all one time on the cross when God put all sin on him. Now notice in this verse it doesn't say that we become righteous. It says we might become the righteousness of God in him. So how do we get this righteousness imputed or put to our account? How do we do that? When well, Romans 4 it talks about how how when Abraham believed God it was accounted or put to him, put to his account righteousness. Righteousness was put to account because he believed God and took him at his word. But it says that it wasn't Put to his, uh, righteousness wasn't put to his account just for his sake, so we could all look and say, well, look how great Abraham is. It says that it was written not for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but it was for us also. This was written also for us. It says, it shall be imputed to us, or put to our account, who believe in him, who believe in Jesus Christ, believe the record that God gave of his son that he went and he bore the sins of the whole world. He died on the cross and it is finished. All sin is paid in full. If you believe that, God says he promises to put righteousness to your account. God will literally take a pen and write righteousness on your ledger. And so that's the third type of imputation. Whenever you put your faith in what Christ did, uh, Christ's righteousness is imputed or put to your account by faith. And now we stand before God not having anything to boast about. We don't say, uh, all my good works got me here. We, we, we stand before God based upon what Christ did. He interceded for us. He, he bore our sins. He was our sin substitute, our substitu uh, substitutionary sacrifice. God was satisfied with the payment that Christ made. He was our propitiation, the big word there. But he was not just our propitiation for, for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. God was literally satisfied with the sacrifice that Christ made on our behalf. And that's what Paul's pointing out here to uh, Philemon. Think about what Christ did for us. How much more you ought to forgive him. Think about that. And I think, too, so I was in the mind of uh, Philemon for a minute, and I had to think, well, I'm getting in the mind of Onesimus uh, for a little bit and think, well, what, what's he thinking? He's, stand, he's standing there, I guess, in, in front of Philemon, the one he's wronged and ran away, and, and he's got this letter, and he's probably scratching his head thinking, am I going to get out of this? I don't know. What's he going to do? Is he going to forgive me? Is he going to set me free? I, I don't know what's going to happen. But I think about this, too. What if Onesimus took the letter, ripped it up and threw it away and said, nah, I appreciate it, Paul. I don't need your help. I'm going to go back to him anyway and I'm going to work it off myself. I'm going to do all these good works and make things right with him. Uh, you know, I appreciate you, but no thanks. Uh, I think that that's kind of how a lot of people treat their own salvation and their own standing with God today. They think that they don't need the sacrifice or the substitute that God provided. They think that by their own good works that they can make things right with God or they can reconcile themselves back to God, but that is not true. The Bible tells us that uh, righteousness is not of works. 
It's not of works, but by his mercy. That means not getting what you deserved. He saved us. Not by works of righteousness, but by his mercy he saved us. That's Titus 3.5. So I think there's a lot of people who trust in their own good works, but we know that the best we have to offer God is filthy rags in regards to our salvation. He provided a substitute, a sin bearer, someone who stood in our place, treated how we should have been treated, died the death that we all deserve. And all he asks for us to do is believe that he did it for us. And here's what Paul says later on after he, he points out that great truth of imputation, how that Christ, uh, not only was Paul offering to put all the charges of Onesimus to his account, and that points to Christ putting all of the things that we've done wrong to his account. Paul offers assurance yet again here in verse 19. He says, I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. He says, I will repay. Not to mention that you owe me even your own self. Besides, these. And what he's saying there is, in another version it says, you owe me your very soul. You owe me your life. He said, I'm going, I'm, I'm going to assure you right here. I'm writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, but I don't want to bring this up. I wasn't going to, but here I am. You owe me. You owe me. Paul says he's writing with his own hand. He signed it. He's still delivered. Jesus Christ, he signed it with his own blood on the cross. The, offer, the, the forgiveness that he offers to us, he signed it with his own blood on the cross. He was sealed in the tomb and delivered again for our justification. That's the assurance that God gives to us that he was satisfied with the payment that Christ made when he rose again from the dead three days later. Uh, we can have that assurance, too, that if we put our trust in the payment that he made, we can know where we're going to go when we die. Paul says, you owe me. You owe me. You owe me your very own soul. It's, that just points that that Philemon owes uh, Paul. Paul led him to Christ somewhere along the way after hearing the gospel. Uh, we need to be reminded in the same way here of the debt that we all owe to Christ even before we make decisions and, and do things according uh, to the will of God. We need to know what the will of God is. And the only way that we can know the will of God is that we know the word of God. And so we need to be reminded of the debt that we owe before we make decisions. We all should be pointing to the cross and saying, I owe you, God, with everything, every breath in my lungs, every fiber of my being I owe to you, and I'm going to serve you. I'm going to be an ambassador. I'm going to be. Uh, I'm going to have take this word of of uh, reconciliation, and I'm going to help try to fix broken things. And the only way that I can fix broken things is by pointing people to you and the cross. He goes on to say in verse 20, "Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord." Paul could get joy from what Philemon would do. Uh, out of grace, giving Onesimus something he didn't deserve. And, and Harry Ironside said this. He said, when one has been saved by grace, getting something you don't deserve, it's expected that he will walk in grace, giving other people things they don't deserve, toward others, even those whom he feels have mistreated and deceived him. And so it's the same grace that saves us. It's the same grace that we should show to other people. And we need to be reminded of that daily. We need to be reminded of the sacrifice that Christ paid for us in our place. 
And we take this gospel of grace, we take it to the lost, and we take the grace of the gospel to the saved because both need to be reminded that we all got something we don't deserve. Verse 21, he says, having confidence in your obedience, Paul was confident that uh, Philemon was going to be obedient to what he's writing and what he's asking. He says, I write to you knowing that you'll do even more than I say. And so I, you have to ask the question, well, how did Philemon respond? How did, he, how did he take this letter? Did he take it and just rip it up, throw it away, and say, no, I'm not doing that. That's ridiculous. This guy's wronged me. He owes me. Uh, I'm not going to show him grace. I'm not going to show him forgiveness. Uh, if you get to reading some commentary and things, that uh, pointed out this fact. The very fact that this letter still exists has to imply that Philemon received it positively, and it, and it went in circulation. And so you think, just like I said, Paul didn't, Paul didn't know if this was going to end up in Scripture or not. It was just a short letter that he wrote to somebody trying to reconcile a situation. And so God must consider this short letter be important for us, that we can take something from it, that we can apply it to our life, that, that we can uh, benefit from it, that it, was, it would be profitable to us. And, and not only that, but uh, so we know that it exists because it, or we know that he received it positively because it still exists, but church history all, also suggests that, that Philemon did more than Paul asked and that he was obedient because church history suggests and shows that both these men, Philemon and Onesimus, became pastors, one in Ephesus, the other in Colossae. So did, so did Philemon did more than Paul asked? Did he set him free? Sure did. Church history tells us that, that they both became pastors. There is evidence of letters written to both. Um, and that's a, just a great picture of forgiveness, a great picture of grace. Uh, and we need to be reminded of that. Paul uh, has a play on words with both of their names. Philemon means affectionate. Paul commended him for it at the beginning of the letter and then gave him an opportunity to show that affection and that love to somebody who didn't deserve it. And then Onesimus means profitable. He said, I know he wasn't profitable to you before, but he can be profitable to you now. Why don't you let him live up to his name? And, and that's what we see here, both by church history and, and the fact that this letter still exists today. And it's a great, it's a great, great picture for us. And, and so I'll leave you with this. When we're making decisions, as the band comes on up, um, when we make decisions toward other people, Colossians 3.13 tells us that we need to make allowance for each other's faults. Why? Because we're going to mess up. We're, gonna, we're all going to do wrong. We're going to mess up, and we're going to make a mess of things, but we're supposed to make allowance for that towards other people, towards other believers especially, and that we should remember that the Lord forgave you. Think about how much God has forgiven you. We also ought to forgive one another.